It's Wednesday, April 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The recall election to remove California Governor Gavin Newsom is on. Proponents of the recall have submitted enough signatures to put the recall on the ballot. No date has been set yet, but the vote may come by November. Now we have to see how many people will jump into the race to replace, and how does the state change over the course of the next few months? Taryn Luna, reporter at the LA Times, joins us for how the recall circus is back in California. Next, on Monday, we heard that the Supreme Court will be hearing a major Second Amendment case that could impact gun laws for years to come. They will be hearing a case out of New York in the next term that has to do with a law restricting the ability to carry concealed handguns in public. Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox, joins us for what to know about this case and how the conservative majority in the court may impact the decision. Finally, we know that women, and especially mothers of school-aged children, have had a tough time when it comes to staying in the workforce. Now, we have some numbers. Nearly 1.5 million mothers are still missing from the workforce compared to last year at the beginning of the pandemic. Two big factors driving that are access to childcare and the demands of the home and virtual schooling for kids. Katie Riley, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The fact that he has completely mismanaged this entire situation. There's many states that have um, handled the crisis in a much different manner. They didn't have to shut down the fifth largest economy in the world. They didn't have to destroy people's lives. Joining us now is Taryn Luna, reporter at the L.A. Times covering Governor Gavin Newsom. Thanks for joining us, Taryn. Thanks for having me on. The recall seems to be full go now. There's still some wiggle room. I guess some people who have signed on uh, can still take back their signatures if they want. But for the most part, the recall effort has been successful already. It's going to be on the ballot. We're thinking sometime in November. That time is still unclear. But it seems that proponents of the effort have gotten all the signatures they need and and will be headed for this recall vote. So, Taryn, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing and reactions from the governor, if any, so far. Yesterday, we saw that there, we learned from the Secretary of State that the proponents had met and exceeded the minimum threshold to qualify. So as you mentioned, there could be some wiggle room there in terms of some kind of court intervention or a mass number of people saying that they signed unknowingly or that their signature shouldn't be valid. That would require over 100,000 people do that. And that would just be it seems unfeasible at this point. So for all intents and purposes, we should expect a recall election. By the end of the year, Newsom seemed like he was prepared for that announcement yesterday. He put out a statement talking about how it threatens our values as Californians, talking about fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, helping families, protecting the environment, and that there's just too much at stake at this point to vote against him and to support one of these other candidates. I know a lot of this recall effort was fueled by dissatisfaction of voters with how the governor was handling this. Obviously, we know what happened at the French Laundry, just a big flub for the governor, all that stuff. There's some other things, obviously, homelessness, taxes, all of this figures into this overall recall effort. But public polling shows that really a lot of people don't really want this to happen. Is that correct? So some of the recent polling we saw over the last month showed that as high as 56 percent of people did not support the recall and were actually opposed to it. A little closer, I think it was under 40 percent were in favor of it. Um, so that all speaks well for Newsom. Prior to this recall effort qualifying, 
we saw five or six different efforts to recall the governor. It really wasn't until the pandemic kicked in and we saw some of his policies around shutting down businesses and staying home really take effect. And you got some pushback on that. And then there was a a court case where the proponents petitioned for more time to collect signatures because of the pandemic and and inciting the pandemic as an impetus to collecting signatures. So when that was approved, they got more time to do it. And that was really a big moment in terms of the ability of this effort to qualify. It seems like it could still be an uphill battle. And, And as I mentioned, the pandemic really took center stage with everybody on this. And what's going to happen by the time this vote actually happens, November, by the end of the year, whenever it is, most kids will be back in school, it seems like. More people will be vaccinated. Right now, California has the lowest case rate in the country. So things are getting better, and it's going to be tough to really keep up this momentum against him on that front right now. And then the other part of it is, you know, a lot of people call it the circus, right? All of these candidates are going to be coming out of nowhere to try to replace him. Who else will try to do this? Right. And I think those two things you touched on are are huge factors for Newsom. So the first is that the conventional wisdom is the longer the pandemic has kind of been in the rearview mirror by the time we have this election, that all bodes better for Newsom, right? So as you mentioned, if kids are back in school, if we're largely leading some sort of a normal life again, voters are going to be less upset about their current state and their current existence, and they might not want to take that out on their governor, right? They might not be as frustrated. So that is good for him. And then the other factor for all this is unless another challenger, viable challenger comes in with the ability to pull not only Democratic voters to their side, but also independents to their side, it becomes a lot easier for Newsom. And so far, we're looking at the former mayor of San Diego, Faulkner, who's come in. He's a Republican. Caitlyn Jenner's coming in. She's also a Republican. There's talk about other candidates and other Democrats maybe being interested. Antonio Villaraigosa is one that there's a lot of talk about. Tom Steyer, a lot of talk about him as well. But unless you really see a Democrat come in with a lot of appeal or a moderate independent voter or a Republican with enough cachet to bring independents and Democrats to their side, it's all looking positive for him at this point. Again, there's a ton of time between now and November, right? So we don't know what could happen. We could have another French laundry situation or (laughs) something like that that would not be good for him. So there's there's a lot of time for things to happen. And and that's important too, right? The top contenders, as it stands right now, are all Republicans. So what will happen if a Democrat does get in there? And this all has shades of uh, 2003 when it happened with Gray Davis and they recalled him. That's when we got the governor. That's when Arnold Schwarzenegger won and came in. And there hasn't been a Republican governor since then. So there's a lot of stuff to kind of analyze and go through. And the amount of money that's going to be put into this thing, it's going to be huge. I think one of the key things to watch, like you mentioned, is just who these other contenders are and who comes in. Because let's say we have some additional wave of the pandemic even at that point, even if voters are frustrated and they look down a ballot and they see Newsom as a Democrat and no other real Democrats that they know on the other side, are they going to vote for a Republican in California? It's kind of hard to expect, right? Unless right. you see a Schwarzenegger-esque candidate like you mentioned. Taryn Luna, reporter at the LA Times covering Governor Gavin Newsom. Thank you very much for joining us. They're phony arguments suggesting that these are Second Amendment rights at stake from what we're talking about. But no amendment 
no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. Joining us now is Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Ian. It's good to be here. Thanks so much. The Supreme Court on Monday announced that they will be hearing a gun rights case on whether New Yorkers can carry concealed handguns while in public. This could be one of the most consequential rulings related to the Second Amendment in over a decade. And uh, everybody is uh, all up in arms about this right now, trying to guess really which way the court will go on something like this. And, uh, you know, concerns over what it could do to other gun laws in the United States, especially right now at this time when Democrats, the White House, are trying to pass some type of gun reform legislation as well. So, Ian, tell us a little bit about the case that the Supreme Court said they're going to be hearing. This is a big, big case. I mean, this is the biggest guns case probably to hit the Supreme Court since 2008 and potentially be the second biggest guns case in the court's history. So to lay out some of that history real quick before I get into this specific case, the Second Amendment, as many of your listeners probably know, starts with the phrase a well-regulated militia. It says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. And the way that the Supreme Court interpreted that amendment literally up until 2008 is they really took that first passage about a well-regulated militia seriously. They said the purpose of this amendment is to protect people's ability to join militias. It's not really about the individual right to bear arms. And then in 2008, the Supreme Court handed down this case called D.C. v. Heller. And Heller was the first time in American history that the Supreme Court said, no, this is about an individual right to bear arms, and it's specifically about the right of individuals to self But Heller was riddled with caveats. It said that dangerous and unusual weapons can still be banned. It said that there could be bans on the use of felons and people with mental illnesses carrying firearms. It said there could be bans on guns in what it called sensitive places. And so, like, it said there's an individual right to bear arms, but it didn't tell you that much about what the scope of the Second Amendment was. And it did say that there were some pretty hefty limits on it. Flash forward to now, and the Supreme Court is just much, much, much more conservative. The lower courts have figured out a framework, a fairly moderate framework to deal with Heller that strikes down laws like you try to ban guns in the home, those sorts of laws will strike down. But it actually tends to uphold most state gun laws. And there has been a dissenting faction amongst the lower court judges that want to move gun on the the interpretation of the Second Amendment much further to the right. One member of that dissenting faction was Brett Kavanaugh. Another member of that dissenting faction was Amy Coney Barrett. And so what is likely to happen here is that a lot of the caveats from the Heller decision are going to are probably going to be wiped out. And you could potentially have more than a decade of lower court decisions saying that most gun laws will be upheld, also struck down, and we could have a whole new world where there's much more access to firearms. So what are we seeing in the New York case specifically? It seems something similar to what we have here in California where I'm at. And this is all having to do with obtaining your license to have a concealed firearm, basically, a handgun. Basically, you you have to prove that you actually need it. As you mentioned earlier, kind of the thing, let's say you're a a store, a liquor store owner or something you need for protection. That might be a case for it. Or you have a known stalker. You might need that for protection. But 
just blanket everybody can't have a concealed carry gun and these types of permits. So that's kind of where this New York case is lying on. The specific phrase that the law uses is proper cause. You have to show that you have proper cause in order to obtain a concealed carry permit in New York. And that's the permit that allows you to bring a gun outside the home for a variety of purposes. And so there's lots of ways you can show proper cause. I mean, like you said, if you're a shop owner, you can sometimes obtain a gun to protect you in your shop. Although generally that will be a limited permit saying that you have to keep the gun in the shop. A lot of guns are issued to bank messengers, you know, people who like bring money back and forth between banks. And there's like obvious reasons why those people want to carry a gun to protect themselves when they're doing their job. When they're not doing their job, it's often a limited use permit. It's very hard in New York to get an unlimited concealed carry permit. I mean, if someone has a stalker, they probably could because you never know when the stalker stalker is going to show up. But you have to show that you have a very particular need and that need has to go beyond the concerns of the general public. You can't gain a concealed carry permit in New York simply by saying, well, I fear that someday I might be a victim of violence. I'd like to have a gun when I do. That's not enough. And so Essentially, what the plaintiffs are asking for in this case is they are claiming that they have a constitutional right to just be able to say, well, I think I might someday want a gun and that should be enough. Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thank you. There was a big drop in workforce participation because lots of people got laid off and lots of people got furloughed and dropped out of the workforce afterwards. But since, you know, last year, fathers and also women who don't have kids have sort of recovered much faster than mothers. Joining us now is Katie Riley, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Katie. No problem. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about uh, some census figures that we got. This is concerning women in the workforce more specifically mothers in the workforce, we had already been hearing stories throughout the pandemic about how women are are dropping out of the workforce more disproportionately than men, and it's harder for them to get back into the workforce. So now we have some numbers to it, and we're seeing that, you know, in March of 2021, we had almost 1.5 million fewer moms of school-aged children that were actively working than in February of 2020 of last year. So Katie, please tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing in these numbers. So I think you have the broad strokes there, right? There are currently about 1.5 million fewer moms of kids who are of school age, so 5 to 17, who are in the workforce now than there were in, well, in March, than there were in February 2020, which was, you know, right before the pandemic shut everything down. That's the last full month before the pandemic started, really, um, in the U.S. Everyone at the start of the pandemic, whether or not they were a parent or men and women both as well, like there was a big drop in workforce participation because lots of people got laid off and lots of people got furloughed and dropped out of the workforce afterwards. But since, you know, last year, fathers and also women who don't have kids have sort of recovered much faster than mothers. That was the big picture that we wanted to dig into. And some of the top reasons, obviously health concerns, the lack of attractive jobs can pose a problem. But some of the main things that we're seeing is access to childcare, and then, you know, the demands of keeping the home up and also virtual schooling for kids. Disproportionately, as I mentioned, 
when kids had to go uh, do remote learning, it was mostly mothers that were staying home to take care of their kids, making sure they're doing the classes, all that, more so than the fathers. So that's one of the main things that has kept a lot of them out of the workforce, made them drop out of the workforce, and has kept them from going back. This is one of the most interesting trends I think we saw in the data when we dug in. So in a normal year, women's participation in the workforce, but specifically mothers' participation, drops during the summer months. So women are working full-time during the year, and then when their kids are off from school, they often drop out of the workforce. But this year, what we saw was actually the opposite. So when the kids who were virtually schooling, I guess from March till um, the end of the school year, stopped schooling, the women's and mothers' workforce participation actually went up during the summer, and then it went back down when kids got back into school. So that is something that we don't usually see. It seems like the school year this year has actually had the opposite effect, which suggests that kids being at home and virtual schooling has had a big impact on mothers' participation in the workforce. Some of the other numbers that uh, came out throughout all of this is uh, 51% of women reported that they were responsible for most or all of the household labor during the pandemic. 44% said they shared the responsibilities equally with their partner. Now, they asked the same question to men, and they came up with uh, some different numbers. 16% said that they were fully responsible for the household stuff. You know, maybe those are stay-at-home dads. But then 72% said that they shared equally the responsibilities, which in my head kind of you know makes me think, you know, men think they're sharing that time equally, but most likely probably not. So that was another thing, too, is, you know, not just the kids, but keeping up the house was a, an important thing that women had to take care of more than the men. So I think one of the things that we should keep in mind when we're talking about this data is that a lot of this, like the inequity in who takes care of kids and who does housework, seems particularly extreme this year. But this is something that we see all the time in data. And, you know, it's not particularly new. So if you look at the amount of time that both women and men spend taking care of kids each week, for example, this isn't something that we mentioned in the article, but women in 2019 actually spent twice as much time taking care of household children as men overall, but employed women, so women who are part of the workforce, actually also took care of children for twice the amount of time that men who were not who were unemployed or not employed did. So even women who are working full time or working are taking care of kids more than men who are not working. So, uh, so yeah, so I mean, I mean, these are the numbers that we're seeing right now. And, and as I mentioned, we've kind of been seeing this trajectory happen throughout the pandemic. We knew it was going to happen. And now is the next part, you know, getting these mothers and women back into the workforce. The caregiving aspect of this is very important. And then even uh, women uh, in communities of color are affected differently as well. A lot of them are in the leisure and hospitality industries, which just got wrecked throughout this whole pandemic. So it's a long road. It's going to be a long road back for women, mothers in particular, uh, and we'll see how they do get back there. So we'll keep monitoring all of that. Katie Riley, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.